will be in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 32. Words will be on the screen behind me. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Albert Einstein, one of the greatest and most influential physicists that we've known, wrote a letter in January 3rd, 1954, to philosopher Eric Gutkind, who had sent Einstein a copy of his book titled 
choose life, the biblical call to revolt. In his letter, this is what Einstein said. The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. Albert Einstein's not alone in his thinking. In fact, some of you here may share his thoughts about the Bible, about God. Some of you maybe shared these kind of thoughts in the past. It's, it's this view of the Bible, this view of God that has spawned a number of explanations for what we read here in Acts 26 as Paul retells his conversion story on the Damascus Road. This view of the Bible, this view of God has to explain away miracles. And so for Paul's conversion, a number of the explanations through the years has been that, that Paul had an epileptic fit or that he had a heat stroke. But more than that, this view of the scriptures, this view of God has led to a number of explanations for the biggest miracle of all. And that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul is making his defense here in chapter 26, the first, at least in the first half of 26, he says to King Agrippa and the others who are gathered in verse 8, he says, why is it thought incredible by any of, any of you that God raises the dead? That word for incredible is unbelievable. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ unbelievable? There's two reasons. The first reason why the resurrection is unbelievable is because of the constraint of darkness. The constraint of darkness. Paul tells King Agrippa of his conversion, of, of being blinded on the road to Damascus, and then being appointed by Jesus to serve as his witness. And then Paul retells what Jesus told him and what Jesus sent Paul to do as he was to go out to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. From darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Now, this verse unlocks a very powerful truth that is absolutely countercultural. This verse 18 
teaches that everyone is constrained or controlled by something or someone. That no one is their own boss. Specifically here, that everyone is under the power or the control or the constraint of either Satan or God. Now, you can see why this is countercultural. Because in our day, freedom is defined as the absence of constraints. When you talk about freedom in this world, it is understood that that means the complete absence of restraints, and the Bible says there's no such thing. There's no such thing as an absence of constraints. Everyone is controlled by something. Everyone is controlled by someone. Everyone is under Constraints. Now, let me speak to this constraint on two levels. First, let me explain it at the experiential level that you, and you see and grasp on a daily basis. If you are unable to confront someone or you're unable to tell someone what you really think, because you are afraid of being rejected by them or you're afraid of being thought less of, then you are being controlled by what that person thinks. You're not free. You are constrained. Or if you can't stop uh, drinking or eating or popping pills because it makes you feel so good, then you are being controlled by the pleasure that that substance brings. You're not free. Or if you're unable to enjoy spending just some money on a present day experience for your family because you are storing away thousands and thousands of dollars for future events, like a wedding, like college, like retirement, then you are being controlled by future security, by providing for yourself in the future. You're not free. Now, I'm giving you those examples so that you see at a heart level that everyone is controlled, constrained by something, that you're not free. Now, that's the experiential level at which you can understand there's no such thing as an absence of constraints, but it's deeper. There's a second level of constraint that causes those experiential level constraints, and that's what verse 18 is speaking into that there is a constraint of darkness that the experiential constraints that you have flow out of. Those are just manifestations of a deeper constraint. It's the constraint of darkness. Verse 18 describes it as the power of Satan, which is darkness, or the power of God, which is light. All of the experiential levels of constraint that I just described actually fall underneath this deeper, darker level of constraint. This past spring break, our family went to the, uh, to the mountains and we, we stayed in a cabin on the Blue Ridge Parkway. It was absolutely beautiful. We took a day trip to the Linville Caverns which was amazing. We went on a 30-minute guided tour of the Linville Caverns. 
And they had piped electricity into these caverns so that there could be lights, so that as you walked through it, the guide could point out all the neat features of these caverns, and it was amazing. There was this beautiful stream running through the cavern. There were these amazing little nooks, almost like little rooms in the caverns, where the guide told us that soldiers during the Civil War had come in and hunkered down and slept for the night. Uh, and then there was this abyss that obviously was fenced off because they have sent multiple divers down into this abyss to try to get to the bottom and no one has found the bottom. I mean, just a fascinating, fascinating tour. But here was the moment of the tour that was startling, disconcerting, exhilarating, and scary all at once. The guy told everyone, put your hand up three inches in front of your face. Everybody puts their hand in front of their face, three inches away. And then she shut the light switch off. And all the lights went out in the cavern. And nobody could see their hand three inches in front of their face. You say, well, yeah, but once your eyes adjust, no, there was no adjustment of the eyes. I have never experienced that level of darkness. And then some of the younger kids in the tour started crying, and she flipped the lights back on. Now, we had the perspective of coming from outside the cavern. We had just walked out of a beautiful day in the mountains where it was light and sunny, and we knew there was a world that existed outside these caverns. But I want you to put on your imagination hats just for a second. Imagine that we all had been born into that cavern, and there was no electricity running through it, in utter darkness. And imagine that we all began to search for life's meaning in this utterly dark cavern. And so some people crawled around and they found the stream. And they began to orient their lives around the, the joy and the recreation of this stream that ran through the cavern. And some people crawled around and they found this amazing nook that was almost like a little room. And they began to orient their lives around the safety and the security of this nook. And then others crawled around and they found the abyss. And they oriented their lives around the thrill-seeking of finding the bottom of this abyss. Now, those that oriented their lives around the thrill-seeking of the abyss were not free to settle down in one of the nooks of the cavern. Those that had settled and oriented around the safety and the security of the nook were not free to go thrill-seek in the abyss because they were controlled by that safety and security. Those that were were enjoying the recreation of the stream, they weren't free to go hunker down in the nook because they were controlled by the, the pleasure of the stream and the nook was just too boring. Now, what I've just described to you 
illustrates these two levels of constraint. Because while everyone in that dark cavern was controlled and constrained by different things, they were all constrained by the darkness. The scriptures say that you and I are born into this world in spiritual darkness under the power of Satan, under the power of the evil one, and that there's nothing that we can do to turn the light on or to create light apart from someone opening our eyes. Now, this is why the self-help gospel is so toxic and so dangerous. You say, what's the self-help gospel? Well, it's captured by phrases like, live your truth, or go find the light, or look deep within and find enlightenment. But to use the example of the dark cavern. That is like in the dark cavern, the person that goes and finds the abyss or finds the stream or finds the nook and orients their lives around the thrill-seeking or the pleasure or the safety and security of the nook. It's all still under this constraint of darkness. You're born into this world constrained by darkness and you only have the freedom to operate within that spiritual darkness. And the only way that you can get out of that darkness is if someone, to use the cavern example, someone from the outside comes in and opens your eyes to the light and to the existence of a world that's outside the cavern that you never believed or knew existed. This is what Paul tells King Agrippa in verses 22 to 23. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. In other words, God, what God said would happen, happened. That Jesus Christ was born into the dark cavern, existing in the light, in glory, was born into the dark cavern, lived, died, resurrected, back into the light. And the, and the scriptures say, after he died, he was buried, Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then for 40 days, he appeared intermittently to people in his resurrected and his glorified body. And during those 40 days, it's, it's like he would appear and then disappear. And what was happening, to use again the illustration of the cavern, he was coming back into the dark cavern and he would disappear back into the world of light, heaven, the unseen realm. And he was going back and forth and then finally, when he ascended after 40 days, he wouldn't come back in physically into the dark cavern, but he sent his spirit to dwell in those who believed, 
who would have light in the midst of the darkness till he would physically come back in and set it right once for all and bring light. That's the second coming of Christ. You are constrained by something or someone at all times. No one lives, no one lives in the absence of constraints, even though the world would define it that way. Paul understood this. Notice how chapter 26 comes to a close. Agrippa and Festus get together and say, okay, we can find nothing wrong with this man, nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. But then listen to what Agrippa says to Festus in verse 32. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Remember, Paul was set on getting to Rome. But interesting here, Agrippa believed that freedom was the absence of constraints. That's the only freedom that Agrippa knew. Paul was in chains. And he's saying, man, Paul could have been free if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar. And yet Paul understood how freedom worked, that freedom is not the absence of constraints, but finding the right constraints, the life-giving constraints. Paul knew that true freedom is found in relationship with Jesus Christ, under his constraints, under his control, under his power. That's where true freedom is found. And so Paul, constrained by chains, could say, I'm free. I am free because I am submitted to Jesus Christ, and that's where freedom is found. Why is the resurrection unbelievable? First, because of the constraint of darkness. But second, because of the pride of the intellect. The, the story takes a little bit of a humorous turn. Right? Paul's making his defense, and here Festus, the Roman governor, finally says in a very loud voice to interrupt Paul, basically he is sick and tired of this crazy talk of Paul's crazy resurrection talk. So verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, what does Festus mean by this? He's not saying Paul's incoherent. He's not saying that Paul somehow has had a total leave of his senses no, he's saying that because of too much learning, that Paul has gone beyond the realm of common sense. He's studied the Bible too much, and he's arrived at conclusions that are, are way beyond common sense. For the Romans, rational thinking and wisdom was paramount. And so it was crazy talk for this Roman governor to think, I'm supposed to believe in a literal bodily resurrection? didn't make common sense. Now, I hope you see as we study through Acts that not much has changed in 2,000 years. Yes, massive technological advances, but the pride of the intellect has remained. Festus, the Roman governor, perished through pride of intellect. His intellect was God. 
His intellect was the measure of all things. His intellect left no room for Paul's outlandish ideas. His intellect was God. That's because of that pride that he perished. In 1966, in the spring of 1966, Time Magazine set off a firestorm of public debate when they published a cover story that was titled, Is God Dead? Now, that's a question that will kick off some debate. But what it highlighted was man's attempt to find answers to the questions of life and to find meaning to the deep mystery of life. That was the whole purpose of it. That's why it was highlighted. That's why it kicked off debate. And that has been the story of history, is mankind trying to figure out the answers to life and the mystery and the meaning behind this mystery of life that we have. And today, it's no different. One of the places that people are increasingly turning to to find answers to life and to find meaning to the mystery of life is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is, is skyrocketing right now. It influences which streets we walk down, which clothes we buy, which articles we read, who we date, where and how we choose to live. And it's oftentimes invoked as this otherworldly, almost godlike thing that's happening. I found this fascinating. One tech worker in artificial intelligence said this. At the end of the day, artificial intelligence is just a lot of math. It's just a lot, a lot of math. It is intelligence by brute force, and yet it is spoken of as if it were semi-divine. The relationship between Artificial intelligence and the divine is captured by this interesting irony. A group of scientists create an AI system and they ask it, is there a God? And the artificial intelligence spits out an answer, insufficient computing power to determine an answer. So they redouble their efforts and they spend time building out the capacity of this artificial intelligence and improving it and then they eventually ask it again, is there a God? And the AI responds, there is now. Ultimately, it's people writing the scripts. It is people writing the scripts for the answers that artificial intelligence gives. And the algorithm just decide which answers get up to the top. It's not artificial intelligence, it's human programming. It's human programming. It's a closed system, and here's the key. It's a closed system trying to provide answers that the closed system cannot give. It's a closed system trying to provide answers that the closed system cannot give. It would be like being born into that dark cavern that I talked about, never having seen light, never even knowing that light exists, and making an absolute statement that there's no such thing as light. You're, you can only operate within the closed system. And so absolute statements are only made in the context of what the intellect can see and understand. That's pride of intellect. 
Several years ago, a, ne a neuroscientist, philosopher, famous atheist, Sam Harris, was interviewed by National Public Radio about artificial intelligence. And he said, it is generally agreed among scientists that in the next 50 years, that the advances in technology are, are pointing to a superhuman intelligence. And this is what Sam Harris said. So this machine should think about a million times faster than the minds that built it. So you set it running for a week and it will perform 20,000 years of human level intellectual work week after week after week. How could we even understand, much less constrain a mind making this sort of progress? And then he goes on to make this confession as an atheist. He says, we have to admit that we're in the process of building some sort of God. Now would be a good time to make sure it's a God we can live with. How does Paul respond to Festus's pride of intellect? How does he respond to the pride of Festus's intellect? Verses 25 to 26 but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The events of Jesus' death and resurrection were public events. This wasn't some mystery that a few people got hold of and were sworn to secrecy. His ministry, his death, was public knowledge. Jesus' resurrection was witnessed by many. It was a historical event. It was not something done in secret. This wasn't something mysterious. It was a historical event. And that's when Paul turns to King Agrippa and says in verses 27 to 28, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I mean, it's almost, there's a little bit of humor of what's happening here. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa couldn't admit he believed the prophets for fear of what the Romans would think, and he couldn't admit to not believing the prophets for fear of what the Jews would think. So he dodged the question. He basically said to Paul, are you making me play a Christian? What we see here is Agrippa and Festus reject the resurrection, reject the resurrected Christ because of pride. Pride of intellect with Festus, pride of position with Agrippa. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a paradigm-shattering historical event. It is the evidence that this world is not a closed system. It is the evidence that there is a world that exists that you can't see or touch. The Bible calls it heaven. It is the unseen realm, and it's the realm right now where the risen Jesus 
It's where he is alive in this unseen realm. And in those 40 days after his resurrection, he was going back and forth between the unseen realm of heaven and the, and the realm of earth, back and forth. And there's one day when he is going to come back and this veil that is between the seen realm and the unseen realm will be torn apart. The resurrection is evidence that this world is not a closed system. Going back to the cavern illustration, it's the evidence, the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that there is a world of light that exists outside the cavern of darkness. Now this raises two questions. Well, multiple questions, but multiple questions in two areas of application. First, if you are in Christ, meaning you have trusted Jesus Christ, you believe the resurrection. Here's the question. Do you live your life day to day as if this world was a closed system? Do you depend on your intellect, reasoning, strategy, and wisdom alone to navigate this world? There is such thing as functional atheism amongst Christians. There's such thing as a functional atheism. Because you can live your life in line with Christian principles, but independent of the person, Jesus Christ, who is behind those principles. That's living life in a closed system with Christian principles. Question is, do you have an active relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you spend time with him in his word and in prayer? Do you depend on him? Or are you living your life as if this world is a closed system? Second area of application would be for those of you that are investigating Christianity, not yet in Christ. The question for you would be this. Are you ultimately relying on your intellect, meaning the faculty of your reasoning and understanding to provide questions or to answer questions about the meaning of life and the existence of this world? Are you looking within a closed system to provide answers that the closed system can't answer? The resurrection of Jesus Christ has shattered the closed system and given evidence that there is a world that exists that you can't see or touch, but that God has made known through his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The question would be, what is keeping you from believing? Maybe what form of pride is keeping you from believing and turning to the resurrected Christ? Let's pray. Father, We confess our pride. 
We confess that we make our intellect, our reasoning, our strategy, our understanding the ultimate. We confess that we even functionally do that. That while we believe the resurrection, while we've turned to Christ, that we functionally live day to day as though we're in a closed system. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you that when he rose from the dead, that he shattered this closed system. As for 40 days, he was moving in between the world that we can see and touch and the unseen world of heaven. And thank you for the hope that one day your son Jesus is going to return and forever remove the veil between heaven and earth, between the seen and the unseen. Oh, Father, would you, by your Spirit, grab hold of our hearts, convince us daily, moment by moment, of the reality of heaven and earth. And Father, I pray for those that have been investigating Christianity, who are seeking answers, that Spirit, you would open their hearts, open their minds to the reality, to the historical event of the resurrection. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.